So one Sunday morning, in a small church, a new pastor asked one of the deacons if they would pray. It was an older man, and he jumped up to pray, and he started with the following words. He said, Lord, I hate buttermilk. Pastor sitting in the front row and starts to get a little bit nervous. Maybe I, maybe I misheard. Looks up at the, 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 the deacon. Maybe I misheard. The deacon continues, and Lord, I hate lard. And then the, the pastor realizes that he asked the wrong person to pray. And before he could do anything, the deacon continues. He says, Lord, and I'm not too crazy about plain flour either. But after you mix them all together and bake them in a hot oven, I just love biscuits. And the pastor's like, okay, well, your theory is sound, but not sure where this is going. And then he said, Lord, help us to realize that when life gets hard, when things come up that we don't like, whenever we don't understand what you are doing, that we need to wait and see what you are making. After you get through the mixing and the baking, it'll probably be something even better than biscuits. Amen. God's making biscuits with us, of us, as we move through this amalgamation process, as we go forward. There's a lot of different ingredients. Some of those ingredients we may love, we may really like, and some of those ingredients, as I said to the morning congregation, we may not like at all. We may not even understand. But there is still mixing and there is still baking and creating that God is doing in this process. These different ingredients that when they are put together, they are better. They are better together. We are better together. And we need to keep our gaze firmly set on God, who is in the process of creating and baking and making and combining us to offer something to our future, but more so to our city's future. We cannot lose sight of the fact that God's primary reason for drawing us together is for the salvation of people who don't know Jesus. It's not actually for our comfort and all those things that we can tend to hold on to, it's actually so the lost will become saved. Which is echoed in the words that Paul started our service with. Joel chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Now those words were offered to us from John a couple of months ago, I think it was, John, when you flicked through and you said, I think God's speaking something. How true are those words? Today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the, the day the church celebrates its original birthday, when the Holy Spirit was given and, 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 and filled all those people, when this prophecy was starting to be fulfilled, but it wasn't the conclusion of this prophecy. Just like now isn't the conclusion, it's part of us living that out and seeing it out that we come together, both male and female, old and young, slave and free, basically all realms of society, we come together and God says, you are the people that I want to fill my spirit with to show this world who I am and what I can do. We are better together. Just like the Israelites, they were better together. Now last week we did Joshua 1 and we saw that they'd, they'd moved all the way to the Jordan River. So they come through the desert, 40 years in the desert, come out the other side 
and they're standing up the Jordan River and on the other side of the Jordan River is the promised land, the land they had been promised, the land that was so figuratively called the land flowing in milk and honey. And if you love milk and honey, that was a dream, right? It was like, wow. So we read in the first, chapter, first verse of Joshua 3, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim. Wasn't a good place, that place. <laughs> and went to Jordan. No wonder. Where they were camped before the crossing over. And after these days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. Now, the people were the 12 tribes of Israel. But they weren't called the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, nowhere in Joshua up to this point have they ever been called the 12 tribes of of Israel. We know they are because of what they were called previously. But in Joshua, it's always the people of God or the nation of Israel because they are equally seen. They were seen as a group of people, not as segregated. And that'll become important in just a minute that they were God's people. And the instruction is when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from the positions and follow it. And we go, oh, that's nice. But their positions were really key. When they first found themselves in the desert, we read in Numbers 2 that there was very clear um, organisation that they needed to camp in. So have a look at this photo. This is how they were to camp every time they settled into the desert. So each of those squares are the tribes of Israel, and in the middle is the tent of meeting, um, the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant. God was in the centre. Now the interesting thing about the way they would um, live is they'd never have any need to talk to anyone from a different tribe. It wasn't really even encouraged. It didn't really matter. They were quite clearly separated and uh, regimented with clear boundaries. And into that, that, that way of being, some people were born into this. There would have been people that were 40 years old, born into this way of thinking. And God says, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you're to move out from your positions and follow Leave behind your separation and division and follow God. They were leaving behind their separation for good. For good. Because they were better together. God had them in that formation we just saw for a good reason. For a set time. For a specific season. But now he was moving them into a different time and a different season with different reasons. So then God says, then once you follow me, once you move from that and you follow me, then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. You ever been in that situation where you have no idea what is ahead? God has brought you to a certain point and there are decisions you have to make, but you can't see past the fog. You can't see how it will turn out or how it should turn out. And you have big decisions you have to make. And some of those decisions are risky. And they're full of consequence, both good and bad. And you feel a lot of pressure and you go, I don't know how to go that way. I've never been that way before. When we started Village, which was five and a half years ago now, we moved from New Life. And New Life, um, I was in full-time ministry and we had a manse. So part of the employment package, if you like, to talk in secular terms, is you had a stipend and a manse. But when you start a church, there's no manse. And so the United Church have a, a way of sort of handling this. And so they build into your package. If you're full-time, they give you a full-time manse allowance, which is about half the price of a manse in current day. Now it's about an eighth 
of whatever it costs to live in a manse, but it was half the thing. So all of a sudden we moved from new life to village, living the same life, doing the same things, except my position moved from full-time to point eight. And those of you that are there kind of knew why that was, um, because we wanted to see what on earth this adventure would be. But with that, the manse allowance, which is half of a mortgage, reduces to point eight two. And we've got to find a house. Now, thankfully, it is not as mental as it is today trying to find a house. But we went on the hunt finding a house and I felt like the Israelites. It's just like, <laughs> what? This isn't part of the training they give you in college. This isn't how you, you should think about these things. We were doing something, we're like, what? And God, we know God is saying, go over there. And <laughs> God, there's no house. And we're not sure what we can afford. And the river's looking a bit dicey. And so Lyndall, as diligent as she is, started calling around real estate agents and called one at exactly the right moment where the people said, oh, we've actually got a house that hasn't got on the market yet, but the owner of this house lives in Perth and wants to sell the house so they can buy a truck rig. So you can imagine how much truck rigs cost, right? Like, whoa, well, so we're living in a truck rig. Um, and so, um, so if you want, you can come in and have a look, but we've had a bit of problems because we can't get the people that are there out. We're just on the verge of doing that. But it hasn't gone on the market yet. Come and have a look. And so we went and had a look. We rushed around and went, that's the place we're in now. It was perfect. It was everything that we had on our wish list. And it was like God was saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at the river and you go, how on earth? It's unknown. And God says, no, you'll know the way because you'll follow me. That's all you need to do. You don't need to see ahead and work out. Just follow me. Take a step in to the river. You will know which way to go. Since you've never been this way before, because God will go first and then will show you. So the Israelites think they're ready. They're good to go. All right, let's take on the river. And Joshua tells the people in verse 5, first of all, you've got to consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Now, consecrate is a strange word. Bit of a show of hands. Outside of church, if you've heard the word consecrate used in the last week, <laughs> month, year, ever, it's a dead word in our culture, right? It's just the consecrate, it's weird, it's strange. We don't use that word at all. In the, in the Bible, it means to sanctify, to prepare, to dedicate to be hallowed, the hallowed turf of the MCG, if there's any cricket fans amongst us. To be holy, to be separated. It's the same word that God used when he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When he blessed, he sanctified, he consecrated that day as holy. When the tent of meeting was first uh, put up, and God consecrated it. He said something special and holy is going to happen here. I'm setting it apart. When he called Aaron to do the work that Aaron did in supporting Moses, he consecrated Aaron. He set him apart and empowered him for the work he was going to do. When God stood upon the land, that land became consecrated. Right? So you get the feel of this strange word that we don't actually use. Our culture has done away with it, but the Bible hasn't. The Bible hasn't gone, oh yeah, we missed the point, we're all out of date, we'll just put it. There is still a call in the scriptures for us to consecrate ourselves. And we live that through things like baptism. Baptism is an act of consecration, of setting apart. When you might fast for spiritual reasons, not for medical ones, to go, go a morning without food for the scan you've got to have. But when you say, God, I'm going to fast, 
That's consecrating, it's setting yourself aside from those appetites to feast on God. When we share communion together, it's an act of consecration. It's to say we belong to something that is not of this world, something of God. And so the question rests for us, and it's a powerful, significant question that we'll need to dig into in future weeks. How are we going to consecrate ourselves for the merger? How are we going to consecrate ourselves in order for God to do the work God wants to do? Now, here's the funny thing. When we, when we don't know the way forward, when we're lost and we go, I don't know the way forward, we don't say, oh, I better go and take some consecration time for myself, do we? We say, God, help me, which is a good prayer to pray. But the scriptures pull us toward this idea of, you should set yourselves apart. And think about it this way. So if I'm in an issue and a bunch of worry and concern and stuff's not working out, and God says, I want you to set yourself apart from that stuff. So God, I come to you. Yeah, yeah, you come to me, God says. So we set ourselves apart from that. We consecrate ourselves from that so we can look at that situation with the eyes of God. So God can actually help us get some perspective of what we should do. And so we're not defined by that situation, but we're defined by God. We're consecrated by God. And when we are set apart, when we are consecrated for God, his will flows so much more freely for us because consecration is readying ourselves to follow God. Now, this is essential for us to grab hold of. Merging together, coming together, at a 10 a.m. service from the 17th of July, that is not going to be enough for God to reach the people he wants to reach. It may be very helpful in that, but it won't be the way it happens. The way it happens, what will stir people's hearts is when a holy God works in a holy people. A people that have said, we have set ourselves apart, we have sacrificed, we have given up. God, we are yours. We are for you. Now use us. That's what will make things different. And the gateway to entertain holiness is consecration. So God asks his people to be consecrated. And then he says, now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. So now he introduces this idea of, oh, yeah, yeah, you're 12 tribes. Let's get back to that, God's saying. It's the first time in Joshua that it's brought up, that it's mentioned. And it's mentioned in this fascinating idea that God says, okay, now... I want one person from every tribe and you are going to come and help the Levitical priests carry the Ark of the Covenant through. So you're going to be tenders and helpers of those priests. And, and by doing one from each tribe, it's like you're all helping. You're all contributing to this in an equal way. And so he calls these 12 men to come and, and aid the Levitical priests. Now the Jordan is at flood stage. We talked about that last week. This is actually the Jordan River in flood. Uh, it happens during harvest. Yet as soon as the um, priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. That's amazing, right? Just think about that. That's Stunning! That actually happened. What? Now we have to understand something that's even more significant than that. For the Jewish people, the Ark of the Covenant was where God lived. 
They weren't so naive to think that God is contained to a golden box. But that was the very personification and magnification of God's presence. God had shared his presence through the Ark of the Covenant to reside in the heart of the people. So it wasn't just a fancy box. It wasn't just really wealthy. It wasn't just wow. They looked at this and they knew God was with them. Now, just go with me for a second. Let's say you and 11 of your closest mates have to carry the Ark of the Covenant through the flooded River Jordan. Now, some bit of context. How heavy do you think the Ark of the Covenant is? How? how? Heavy. heavy. Come on, give me, a kilo, give me kilograms. 100 kilograms? Do we got to raise 150? 300? To 210? We can't go from 350 to 210, Johnny. Let's go 300. Two. Oh, that's a bit over the top. 600 kilos. The Ark of the Covenant was 600 kilos. So you and 11 of your closest mates have to pick up this 600 kilos and carry it through a flooded river. What are the chances that you're going to drop it? Like massive, right? Does it really matter at 600 kilos? Like flooded? I could, I could, I'll, find, I'll find out the, uh, the dimensions for you if you like. But yeah, yeah it's in there. It's in, actually, you do it. It's in numbers. Yeah. Let us know. So the chances that if this goes wrong, the chances that the first casualty is the Ark of the Covenant. It's God. It's God's presence. It's the Levitical priest going, I didn't realize we were going to drop God into the bottom of the Jordan River forever. The greatest risk in this scenario was one God took himself. You carry me in first. You carry me in first. I'm going into the river first. The Old Testament is a forerunner to Jesus. Every story is meant to point to the lordship and the life and the triumph of Jesus Christ. And when we read and study the Old Testament, we're actually reading and studying Jesus. And as the events of the Jordan River unfold, we see a reflection of the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus leads us into death so that he might hold back the waters and those who believe can walk through unscathed. On the cross, Jesus risks everything of himself by taking on the violence of the cross so that we would have nothing to fear about death. That's how powerful what Jesus did is. The Jordan River stood between the people where they were. They were lost. They were out of time, out of room and had nothing. And just across the, the river was everything they had hoped for and dreamed for and that God had offered them. And the Jordan River stands in the middle. And God did for the Israelites that day what Jesus did on the cross for us. God faces the raging death otherwise awaiting the Israelites and he leads them through it. See the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Just like Jesus faces a raging death awaiting us and leads us through it. And in an absolutely miraculous turn of events, the water from upstream stopped flowing. What? It piled up 
in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Saraneth, while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, in, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now here's what's fascinating about that. In 1266, the Jordan River was left dry for a total of 10 hours because there had been a landslide upstream. upstream. In 1927, an earthquake near Adam stopped the Jordan's flow for 21 hours. Because if we go up to Adam, we will find that the Jordan River starts to snake through a very steep valley that is enclosed by 150 foot high mud cliffs. And as the water would rage through, it would gradually wear away and wear away and you would have these landslides that would stop the Jordan River. Now sometimes they were aided by earthquakes. And it just so happens that they've found out that there was an earthquake believed to have happened in this region at this time when, Jordan, when, when Joshua is to take them through the Jordan. God uses the wrath and the danger and the fury of the river to make a way forward for his people. God uses the diabolical, difficult, horrible situations that we can find ourselves in and says, watch me transform this. Watch me do something saving with this that only I can do. And then we get to the favorite part of the story. This part's awesome. Verse 17, the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they stopped in the middle of the Jordan and standing on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Does anyone just... Has anyone ever walked through a, a river that's just recently stopped flowing because of a miracle? I haven't, but I imagine it goes something like this, right? So they're, they're at the Jordan River and they see the water bank up and they are just dumbstruck at how incredible this is. And then they see the Ark of the Covenant move and they're like just looking at each other going, this is actually happening. This is crazy. And so they move towards and this particular Jewish uh, Israelite comes to the step and he, he takes the first step and it's solid ground. It's dry ground and he can't believe it. And then he follows very tentatively. And as he does, as he walks into this dry riverbed that was just previously over flooded, overflowing, he starts to think, oh, am I at a point that if it all goes south, I can get out? Or can I get back? And as he walks in, he gets to the midway point and something interesting happens. He realizes that another step, there's a shorter distance on this side than on that side because how long can the water be held off will it actually come down on me because the most vulnerable and riskiest place in the whole river is where right in the middle where does God position himself God says I'm going to stand right in the middle in the riskiest the most dangerous the most vulnerable space I'm going to take it all on board and I will shelter you from it so all of Israel pass by so so you can pass by so you can pass through this disaster that should be swamping you and flooding you and drowning you but it can't and it won't because God is there and we get to pass by. The priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they stopped in the middle of the Jordan. They stood on dry ground while all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. God stood in the most dangerous location, ensuring his people could pass through. Just like Jesus stands in the midst of death 
so that everyone who believes that he has the power to do that can pass through death unscathed. How does that happen? It's a miracle. Well, that's the business of God. And we can sometimes fall for the lie that says, hang on, my sin is too great, God wouldn't do that for me. Or my mistakes are too bad that there's no way God would, would enable me to pass by. Or my shame is too big, God wouldn't even dry up the river, let alone stand in the middle of it. Or I've not really cared about God, God's not really going to care about me. But the Bible has a different story. The Bible speaks a different story of a God whose love is so great and so intense for his people that he is absolutely committed to their salvation. That's the God who is leading us into and through this merger process. How good is that? That's the God who sees the rivers that you're in and says, I've got this. You can keep on walking. I've got this. Just trust me. I've got this. It's a God that stands in the rivers that are trying to overwhelm us and holds them back so that we might walk through on dry ground. And I want to show a video now, and the audio is not amazing, but it doesn't matter. It'll still strike you to your core. It's, it's a video that captures this. It was a drama done. You may have seen it before, a drama done in a church that captures exactly what Jesus did. And we're just going to let that, the impact of this hit us and just sit in this and, and worship out of it. So um, let's invite God's ministry of his spirit 